I, I spent uh, hours and hours and days and days with uh, a man in our church. He's a wonderful man. He's a kind man. And uh, we spoke of things of love and marriage and uh, hours and hours of counseling. Man really needed it because today is his 24th wedding anniversary. And uh, I'll give you this bottle of water if you can guess who it is. And it isn't me. Mike Holman. That would have been a good guess, Jamie. That would have been a really good guess. But actually, it is Marge Fetzer and Bill back at the soundboard. So uh, happy 24th at 41 today? Really? Up, up. Up, come on. Come on, stand up. <laughs> 41 years. Amen. Amen. And you guys are so happy. I love it. 12 good years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's your 39th today? Did everybody decide to get married in late March? <laughs> 39. They're not Homer, Debbie. Who else got married today? <laughs> First day of spring. Oh, okay. That's, you know, that, 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 that would have been a good thought. Why didn't we think of that? Because the first day of spring in Washington means absolutely nothing. <laughs> why we didn't think of that. Uh, yeah, apparently it doesn't mean anything here either. <laughs> I also want to bring to your attention a couple of things too. Uh, on April 10th, that's two Sundays from now, uh, we're going to have our second, what we're calling the NUMA service. And uh, this is, it's really an experimental service. We had our first one and we learned a lot and, uh, you know, took a lot of notes and, uh, you know, kind of fumbled through that. It was a lot of fun. And a lot of worship. <laughs> but uh, this second one, uh, we're going to take what we've learned and really hone in on some things I, I really believe God wants to do with our congregation. And so the NUMA service is really, uh, you know, on Sunday morning, there's, there's just a, a bit of a structure, an expected structure. And maybe over time we can adjust that a little bit. But uh, on the NUMA service, it's really kind of a anything goes type service. And what I mean by that is not getting all crazy Holy Spirit weird. But just having a lot of time to have worship, but also time for personal prayer. Uh, it's really a glorified prayer service uh, where we come together and uh, we pray in the spirit. We pray for one another. Uh, if you have some, just some things you'd like to get prayed for or, or maybe you know, some things you'd like to see God moving in your life, uh, this is the service to come to. If you know someone who's sick or you yourself are ill, then by all means, please come to this service and we'll personally spend some time praying for you, praying over you. Uh, we are a church and a movement that believes that God heals today. And so we will pray uh, for healing for today. And, uh, and of course, we'll also pray for guidance. Sometimes I know I just need some people to gather around me and pray because uh, I'm facing a decision. And, and sometimes as a result of their pray prayers, I can feel more confident or confirmed 
in, in what I felt the Lord leading me to do, even when I don't tell anybody. And so I think it's going to be a great time. And so if you're looking for something like that, if that's something you'd be interested in, a service where we uh, move a bit more uh, in the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit, then by all means come to the NUMA service on April 10th, and uh, that'll start at 6 p.m. I also wanted to bring attention, um, I don't know if you're able to look, but we, we have a, a Brian and Carol's daughter who's serving in South Korea as a missionary. And uh, I think, you know, there's a, a great little bio there, and I don't want to forget about her. I want her to be on our church's radar and on our church's heart. And so, uh, by all means, if you could take some time to read that, she's doing great there. She's an English teacher. And she's really uh, just serving God there with all her heart. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. Thinking of South Korea, if we could all stand as a church for a moment and uh, join hands. So if you're on opposite ends of the aisle, come to the middle. And I think that it is very timely to lift up prayer and to lift up our attention as a church to the events that are happening in, in Libya. Uh, once again, we... we have we are at war in, in a way in every way and so i think we need to pray for the conflict in libya of course the middle east right now is just uh you know it's, it's all in conflict as well as I, I don't know how you can go a day without seeing the news reports about japan uh that that country is uh, i think in the beginning they really thought they had a handle on things and as every day unfolds uh the whole world is beginning to realize what great devastation they have gone through. And I think it's important that we as a church ally our hearts with these issues and lift them up to Jesus. There's something powerful about corporate prayer. Not to say that praying by yourself doesn't have power, but when we stand together like this, I really think there's a show of unity in our Christian church to be able to say, Jesus, we lift these up to you. Help us know how to help. So let's pray. Lord God, for the country of Libya, Lord, where violence and aggression is taking place, we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, for a peaceful, honorable, and sustained solution to take place there. Lord, we don't know the whole story. Our media doesn't know the whole story. But you know the whole story. And Lord, if their leader, who's been there for decades, it's as if it's time for him to go, I pray that we would take part in being a part of that being a part of executing your will, that, that, it is, it, that a new era is going to come, a new dawn is going to rise for the Libyan people. But Lord, war is always a confusing situation. And so we lift up the particulars to you, but we want to say it's on our heart to pray for that country, to pray for the countries of the Middle East right now as so many cultural and political revolutions are gaining strength and gaining momentum. God, we pray for countries like Bahrain and Yemen, Syria, Lord Jesus, countries that we, we would never think would be some uprising. It's happening, Lord. And so, Jesus, we pray for all the turmoil over there that you, we lift our prayers up to you. We pray you teach us how to pray, show us how to pray, show us how to act, and how to have compassion to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, for Japan, for Japan, Lord, uh, uh, a strong, strong ally of this nation in the Pacific, in Asia. Lord, a, a country that may not know always how to ask, ask for help on its own. But Lord, we pray that 
we would gather to them and help them. Lord, while, while the Middle East may be confusing, I think Japan has very much a lot of clarity. They need food. They need shelter. They need clothing. Uh, they, they need a government a bit, you know, that, that is able to meet the needs and ask for help where, where they can. And Lord, for those nuclear reactors, we pray, God, the, that, that you would cool those, that they would not explode and affect a major region of our planet. And so, Lord, we pray for Japan. We stand with them and uh, help us and show us how we can help, if there's any ways we can help, and help us to keep praying uh, for these people uh, who have been displaced, Lord, over half a million. Our hearts go out to them in prayer and in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Apologize, but uh, no, actually, I don't apologize. I think that was very much necessary. And so uh, the sermon may get longer. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to bring to your attention, I think, uh, on, on our envelopes here, of which a lot of people use to, to, to give and support the ministries of this church, uh, one of the things that we are doing is we are taking on a major uh, uh, building project over there, our, our new children's center. I believe our church is really called to do two things specifically, and that is to reach those who have given up on church, you know, th- those who, who have really either had a bad experience in church or, or have, you know, have just given it up, not feeling like there's any answers there. I, I think that is a population where really our church is, is called to... to uh, go and, and reach out to, as well as anybody else, obviously. But I think the second thing I feel really strongly the Lord has called us to is, is to reach out to the children of our community. And so uh, as we're endeavoring to really build a, a first-class, first-rate children's facility over there, uh, we started out the project, I think, very much hoping and believing that many of our church reserves would be able to fund it. Uh, my, my prayer has always been fund it in its entirety. And, and while I think we can get a lot of the basic skeleton and shell there, uh, there's always the, the additional things, particularly for kids, that will turn a room into a, a, a place where they can grow and feel safe and feel comfortable and feel like that's their room, turns into a kid's room. And so, uh, you know, I'm not, if you're at this, if you're stretched at the end of your giving, by all means, I'm not asking you to put your family's finances in jeopardy or anything of that nature. But if you do feel led, Sometimes a lot of people will say, Tom, we just never knew there was a need for the building fund, so that way we, was, we never gave there. And I think now we're just trying to say, yeah, there, we do have a little bit of a need there as we want to finish this project and, and really get going in the summer and the fall uh, of reaching out to our kids. And so if that's something that the Lord would lay on your heart, uh, by all means, make sure it's clearly marked so that we know that is for the building fund. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this long sermon, <laughs> we ask, Lord, that, uh, God, I think this is a sermon far more for the heart than for the head. And so, Lord, there's, I think everybody here may, may say, hey, the first part was for me. I'm not sure about the second. Or the third part was for me. I'm not sure about the first. But, Lord, I just think that there's something in this experience of Mary and Lazarus and Jesus that you have for each of us this morning. So I pray that we would open our hearts to it, open our minds to it, and receive from what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I wasn't going to share this 
but as we were driving home from Reading yesterday, I felt like, I, in a way, I almost needed to. We, uh, Tanya and I, and the boys, actually, were able to go up to Redding, California for the last three days. And we'd never been there. We'd driven through there, but never, you know, really had a chance to explore around there. We went to the Shasta Dam. Have you ever seen that? Anybody ever seen that? It is, I mean, it, it, it you know, I thought, I'm thinking of like a little dam. I mean, this thing is massive, you know. Uh, it, it completely blew me away when I saw it. Lake Shasta is dammed up where it meets the Sacramento River, and they have a little hydropower plant there. On our way there, we had gotten off a little later than we thought, and, and somebody had told me that Reading was six hours away. It turned out to be like 10 uh, <laughs> with three kids. And recognizing that we were going to be a little late for the, you know, for the conference, uh, I did what most sensible and reasonable Americans do, right? What do you do? You speed up a little bit, right? You know? You do not want to speed up a little bit near Modesto or Merced or Manteca. And so uh, we, you know, we got a little golden piece of paper here. <laughs> Don, can you tell me what this is? It's a speeding ticket, isn't it? It's on a Form 215. Yep, CHP Form 215. It was revised in 2005, so you might not be familiar. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but there's something else you don't know about this ticket. This is like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. You know why? Guess what the officer wrote in parentheses right underneath our address. By the way, <laughs> you're going to love this. I, don't, I didn't have really an address here yet. <laughs> So what address did I put on the ticket? The church's address. <laughs> I bet he loved that when he typed it in. But he did believe I was a pastor. I said I was a pastor. And I could tell at first he was like, uh-huh. I get that a lot, you know. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> um, am I going to be on where? Speeders? No. <laughs> but in parentheses, he wrote something that I think all Californians hope they see on a ticket. He wrote, verbal warning. Oh, oh, come on. Verbal warning. I mean, this is, this is, I want to say, I want to frame it, you know? I'm going to put it in my office for everybody to see. Miracles do happen. Uh... One hundred and five. No, <laughs> seventy-five. Seventy-five. Which, which, quite frankly, I'll just be honest with you. When we lived in Washington, everybody used to joke about California drivers. How eighty is a minimum, you know, that 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 most Californians will do on the highway. So I thought at seventy-five, I was psychologically five under. You know, <laughs> I was literally ten over, but psychologically five under. I, I thought the math would work out but not according to the police officer, uh, who, was, who was very, very gracious, actually. Uh, and he was, he was really nice about the whole thing. So uh, part of it was I knew I was caught before he flipped his lights on. I'm, I'm already pulling over before he even pulls out. You know, I, as soon as I came up over the hill and I, I just, I, oh, that's it, you know, pulled over right away. I don't know if that impressed him or not. I hope it did. 
As we were going up to Reading, though, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, when we get to the conference, can you, because my wife loves to joke about the things I do, you know, <laughs> do you know what Tom did the other day? I mean, you know, and, and, and sometimes I don't mind and sometimes I do. And I knew this one I would, you know, I've never met these pastors from Northern California in my life. I don't want the first story they get is, yeah, my husband was speeding, he got a ticket. You know, so, so I told her, I said, you know, can we just not mention that, you know? And, 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 and so, you know, and she didn't, but on the way home, I was thinking about the ticket and I remember thinking, you know, this isn't, that's not necessarily the kind of person I want to be. In fact, it's not the kind of pastor I want to be. I hope that here at Neighborhood Bible Church, we serve a God of grace. If Jesus Christ has stamped anything on our hearts and in this church, is that the grace of God is, is, is our message, it's our gospel, that God has shown us grace, that we're not perfect, that we do break the law, that we do make mistakes, and that we all need to feel comfortable knowing that those mistakes happen. And so as I was thinking of that more and more and more, I thought, you know, I'm going to show the church the ticket so that the church can know that I'm a person as well as a pastor and that we all serve a God of grace and uh, we give grace to each other. And sometimes, uh, you know, I know that a lot of times we can place expectations on each other, you know. Some of them are very reasonable. If I was to come next Sunday and say, you know, here's my empty wine bottle, I'm an alcoholic, well, yeah, you know, that's probably a reasonable expectation that I don't do that. Uh, but then there's other expectations that sometimes just, they even go beyond where, where God has had us. God knows that sometimes we're going to get tickets. Uh, you know, did I, was this an accident? You might, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe not. Quite frankly, I knew I was speeding. That's why I pull over. I would be lying to you if I, you know, said, man, I looked down and I realized I was going, by. I knew I was trying to get there a little quicker. I, I knew, I thought that, I thought I, I thought I could get away with it. <laughs> I did. But you know what? It, it, it you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, there is a reason why, you know, things are the way they are. And so I, I, I guess you could say in one way I'm confessing this to you, but in another way, I'm also trying to set a culture in our church that we can be people as well as pastors. We can be um, we can be ourselves and know that this is a safe place with a family that understands. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dwight said, yeah, nobody else here has ever gotten a ticket. So I... <laughs> Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 chronicles the day before the final time that Jesus would step foot in Jerusalem. This is the, the last town he would be in before he steps foot in Jerusalem and they take his life. The parallel account in Mark chapter 14 uh, lets us know that Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. What's interesting is Simon is no longer a leper, but for some reason throughout the early church history or whatever, he was referred to as Simon the leper. I don't know why he wasn't referred to as Simon the former leper. 
because uh, they wouldn't have went in his house if he had leprosy. But he, went, he had dinner in the house of Simon the leper and Mary and Martha, the famous sisters of Lazarus, were there. And of course, Lazarus himself. What's so important about Lazarus is this is a story about Jesus and Lazarus hanging out after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with the Old Testament story, Jesus is out preaching in the country when Lazarus is sick and dying. His sisters send for Jesus because they believe Jesus has the power to heal him. And, and so Jesus comes, but he comes two days late. And Lazarus is dead. And so his sisters are weeping, feeling like, they're, 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 you know, that Jesus came too late, but there's still the hope Jesus is here. Maybe something can happen and ensure, and, and, and it does. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, the grave clothes and the embalming and the ointments and the, and the smell. I mean, it's all still on him as he comes out of the tomb alive, no longer dead. And so, before Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, he sits down and he has dinners with his friends. Friends who know him. Friends who love him. Friends where Jesus, even Jesus, can be a man as well as the Messiah. But the setting now is very different from when Jesus first came. You see, Jesus was more or less safe from the religious rulers and the Jewish leaders of his day who were out to get him. He was more or less safe as he kind of stayed beyond the scope of Jerusalem and Judea. You know, Galilee, Eritrea, you know, all these different Roman, you know, prefects and provinces, however they were organizing them. So long as he kind of stayed beyond the Jordan, Jesus was more or less safe. But what Lazarus didn't realize is that the man Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, sitting next to him at that dinner table that night, had made a trade. Jesus traded his life for Lazarus's. Because when, G when Mary and Martha sent for him, Jesus was out, out in the country, safe, among his followers. But as he came into Bethany, Bethany was to Jerusalem what Rosedale is to Bakersfield. Just a little, little, little neighborhood a couple miles away, a little suburb. And when Jesus came in, he'd, be, he'd been out in Shafter and Taft doing all this stuff. And no, no, you know, things were going on. Things, nothing against Shafter and Taft, by the way. Amen? Amen. <laughs> nothing against Shafter, you know. But he was out there, you know, in the smaller villages. Mary and Lazarus, they're in Rosedale. And Jesus comes in at their request. And the man, Jesus, wept with them. But the Messiah, Jesus, raises Lazarus from the grave. But in doing so, Jesus signed his own death warrant. For he put a price on his head so big that it would be dangerous if Jesus ever returned to Jerusalem. Why? Because the whole village sees Jesus by the power of God call out this man from death to life. And they're all talking about it. They're talking about it, and they're talking about it, and they're talking about it. And finally, the Jewish leaders were saying, you know what? 
The reports about Jesus turning water into wine, well, that's one thing. The reports about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, well, you know, we could beat him for that. Maybe we won't kill him for that. You know, the reports about Jesus feeding thousands, come on, who feeds thousands? That's obviously a fabricated report. But when they heard, whoa, wait a minute, this man is reviving corpses? Now, that's another story. All of a sudden, we have a battle of influence that's about to happen here because if there's a man who can beat death, for sure he's going to become more powerful than them. They could feed the poor. They had the money. They, 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 had, they, you know, they could provide wine. They could do a lot. But all of a sudden, reviving corpses, that just upped the stakes big time. And they needed to take out the evidence, which was Lazarus, and the perpetrator which was Jesus. So sitting next to Lazarus at the table was Jesus. And little did Lazarus know that a trade had occurred. Jesus, in a sense, traded his life to save the life of his friend. And when he came back that night, the look on Jesus' face told the story that Jesus knew his days were numbered and they knew. They weren't, they weren't ignorant of the fact that Jesus was quickly becoming a hunted man. When he stepped foot in there that night, for one night, it was a break from all the troubles, all the things that would come. Here is Jesus sitting in the place of his friends where he could be a man as well as the Messiah. Let's turn to John 12, chapter 1. Six days before the Passover, which means five days before he was killed. This is less than a week before Jesus would be hanging on the cross. Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Martha always serves while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. The risen Lazarus, eating. He wasn't a ghost. He was a real human being, eating dinner with Jesus. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Uh, this perfume came from northern India, very hard to import, very hard to get, very hard to make in that day. And so uh, this, this was not just, you know, it cost a little more. Uh, this perfume would probably cost what you might be able to save in a lifetime. And it was often used. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 2. Uh, Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Of course, John lets us in on a little apostolic secret here. He says he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to kind of pilfer it when he needed a little extra. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus says. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. 
You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see his work. Who is this man who raises from the dead? Better yet, let's meet the man who was. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Mary. She might have left the dinner table unnoticed, but what she would do next would come under very much notice. Mary goes to the family safe and does four bizarre things that if you're not kind of in tune with Jewish culture, you might miss it. First thing she does is she undoes her hair. In that day and age, Jewish women would put up their hair, you know, put it in some sort of of head wrapping. And it was a it was a, a kind of the form of a maidservant. It was a sign of respect. It would be a sign of respect for the men at the dinner table, their brother, so on and so forth. Mary does something phenomenal in view of everybody in front of everybody she lets down her hair this would be something inexcusable for a good jewish girl for a respectable good jewish girl in her culture but that's what she does that's her first bizarre act the second thing she does is she touches his feet she touches his feet The third thing she does is she pours this expensive nard onto his feet and begins to caress his feet. Everybody at the dinner table is in shock over this scene. We may blow by it because it just seems kind of weird. But I mean, for these people, you talk about expectations. (laughs) What she is doing is nothing compared to this. And then finally, she takes her hair and she begins to wipe up all of the oil in the nard that was on, that was, that was on Jesus' feet. A fitting ending for a very bizarre act right before Jesus is about to go take on the Jewish leaders. Wouldn't you say? But John is very poignant in what he's trying to do. Judas rebukes her, but Jesus says, leave her alone. Because Mary is carefully and strategically acting out a prophetic word. Much in the line of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Like Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was prophesying against the nation, what did he do? He took a clay pot and he did what? He broke it, right? As as he was acting out that, 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 you know, the nation needed to turn their hearts back to God. What What did Isaiah do? Isaiah was even weirder. I mean, if weirder, it could even be the word used. Anybody know? He walked around Jerusalem without clothes. He walked around naked saying, this is what's going to happen. If we don't turn our hearts back to God, we're going to be stripped naked. And sure enough, Mary is doing the same thing. She's taking, and she's doing it dramatically to make one dramatic point. When you anointed somebody, especially the Messiah, you'd anoint them on their forehead, right? When, when they crowned Aaron, who was, who was going to be the chief priest over Israel, Psalm 133 attests to this. They poured the anointing oil on his forehead because the forehead is the seat of leadership for the human being. 
That, 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 that was symbolized by leadership. So they would pour that oil, and that oil would run, and it would go down, and eventually go down your beard and on your clothes, and you'd be set. It would be pouring down you. The only man who was anointed on his feet was a dead man. You anointed a dead man as he laid on the rock or wherever, and as you embalmed him, you'd anoint his feet. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew exactly what Mary was doing. She was prophesying. Prophesying that very soon Jesus was going to be buried. Mary, all those years, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he had to say, learning from him, she'd finally caught it. That the Messiah would die like a prophet, like a Jewish prophet, for the nation of Israel. And this last act she did before God, anointing his feet for burial, as if that was all she could do because Mary knew one thing. She couldn't stop it. There were events and forces in place that were far bigger than her. So she does what she's called to do. She anoints his feet and prepares them for burial. And Judas says, what a waste. This could have been spent on the poor. This could have been given away. We could have done great things with this. Why was this wasted on your feet? And Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. It was intended that she do this. And Jesus looks at Judas and he says, the poor you will always have with you. Now, he's not saying, hey, look, after a life of helping the poor, I want to get a little now. That's not the heart behind this. The heart is this, the, 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 the situations and systems that create the poor and create poverty, as well as the systems and situations to help those who have poverty and are poor, they'll always be in place. That'll just be a part of human existence until I return. But I am a man whose time is running out. Mary will not have this chance within seven days. Because Jesus had substituted his life for hers and for her brothers. Point number one. Jesus substitutes himself for us concerning death. This is where a, a very good example of the substitutionary atonement would be. Where Jesus is placing himself in harm's way to protect Lazarus. Point number two. Actually, I want to stay there for a moment because I think it's very interesting that the oil Mary used was probably used on Lazarus a few months earlier. That same oil, that burial oil, that expensive oil, she probably had embalmed Lazarus's feet. And now what was Mary doing? She was transferring, she was substituting that oil that should have been on the feet of Lazarus and placing it on the feet of Jesus. Point number two, Mary's response. Mary gave everything in response. That perfume cost her a whole life's worth of savings. She held nothing back. Because like the widow with the two mites who gave all of she had, 
Mary recognized one thing and one thing very clearly. Jesus was about to give it all for her and her family. Maybe she didn't realize then it would be for the world. But she knew that Jesus was going to hold nothing back. And so that night, neither was she. Point number three. God's love is extravagant. I don't think God goes around telling everybody, waste your most expensive stuff. But at this night, in front of these disciples, Jesus allowed it because God had, 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 had called her and had led her to do it because there was a very important statement that Jesus wanted the apostles and everybody else around here to make, that God's love is extravagant. It's not, it's not like when we give hugs and we kind of give it a little pats, you know, or, or we go, hey, what's up, you know, and, and, kind of, you know, and that's supposed to be some sort of connection. When God loves you, he hugs you, and he squeezes you, and he twists you, and he holds you up in the air. He extravagantly loves you. And point number four, he excessively loves you. God's love is excessive. Are there tough times, pains, and trials? Absolutely. And I know that the human response is very quick to blame God for those. But the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, and what Mary's trying to act out is, no matter what pain we might be going through, God himself also endured that pain. For he was about to be buried like one of us. But he was also about to rise. And then I want to do a fifth one that's not on your sheet. But this is what I came home with. God's love redefines people's expectations. People's expectations can be a prison. You know, part of the reason why I think Mary took the risk to do what she did was because she didn't want that night to go by and her to regret the rest of her life. She didn't do something significant in her heart for the man and the Messiah she had loved with everything. So therefore, she was willing to give it all for that one night to tell Jesus, I love you. And Jesus had freed her from that prison. When Jesus defended her in front of Judas, nobody else argued with Mary. However, I want to submit to you one more thing. This is most likely the moment that got Jesus killed. Jesus looked at Judas and said, leave her alone. You'll always have the poor with you. Jesus is siding with Mary over one of his apostles. And my guess is this was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. Within days, he would go to the Jewish leaders and say, you want Jesus? I don't know him anymore. I don't understand him anymore. I don't know what he's about anymore. And he ain't bringing in the money like he used to. You want him? I can give him to you. And you know what they said? They said, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. Do you know what 30 pieces of silver is? In the Old Testament days, if you had an ox and it killed another man, 
you had to pay that family 30 pieces of silver. It was called the life price for that ox goring that man or killing that man. So when the Jewish leaders paid the 30 pieces of silver to Judas, Judas knew exactly what was going to happen to Jesus. He was going to die for they just gave him the life price in order to take his life. And they gave it to Judas as if Judas owned Jesus to give. But he did. I think for all of us, it's a caution and a warning. Beware how easy we can get offended. Judas walked with Jesus and saw miracles we'll never see. And when Jesus rebuked him, he got offended at him and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. How easily can we do the same thing? if we're not careful in how we handle offense. I don't think God's calling us to be thick-headed. I do think he would say, develop some thick skin. Because an offended Judas sold out the man as well as the Messiah. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. You know, before we pray, I just want to make one final thing. As I was going over my points in my message this morning, I felt like it was weak. I really did. I said to God, God, I want something better than this. Jesus died for you. God loves you. God excessively loves you. God extravagantly loves you. I, I, I was really arguing with the Lord. God, I want something better than this. I want to make a point where people walk out of this church and say, Man, can you believe what Tom said this morning? I'm just going to confess that so that I can be a person as well as a pastor in your presence. And that that's the kind of church we would have. And yet the more and more I thought about those words, God loves me extravagantly and excessively. That is what God wanted said. And I came up with some other points. And they just felt powerless. They felt lifeless when I said them to myself. As opposed to the simple fact that a trade has occurred. Jesus traded his life to save mine. And I just want to resensitize my heart to that fact because I've said it a thousand times and sometimes I don't think I realize the power of that. That as I endured pain and suffering, God, so has God. As I will one day die, so has he. And yet he's risen. Jesus, I pray this morning, again, I think this is a message more to the heart than to the head. To reconnect our hearts with the heart of God, not just the head of God. To remember that while Mary sat at your feet and learned a lot from you, you know what the response was? The the response was heart. To caress your feet, to dry them, to pour the expensive oil over them. God, let us also lay all that we have and all that we are at the feet of Jesus. That you would say it was intended for you to do this. The poor we will always have among us. 
And we are to always care for the poor. Just before we close, I want to make a very honest invitation. For those of you who maybe you are a vision, you'd kind of given up on church, maybe even given up on God. But you want to be like, like Mary, who gave everything. And you want to avoid ever going down the road of Judas, who through a fence just sold God down the river. If something in your heart is saying, you know what, this is a day to come back. To come back to Christ. Or maybe to come to Christ for the first time. To say, you know what, the word Christian is no longer a bad name for me. Something I want to be proud of. Something I want to be said of me. A follower of Jesus Christ. If that's you, honestly and deliberately, just make eye contact with me right now. Amen. 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 Thank you, God, for this season. Thank you, Lord, that we're going down these last words, these famous last words, Lord. But help us always remember that these last words don't end in death, but they end in eternal life. That is your promise to us that when this life ends, a new life with you and a glorious existence begins. That's something we can all look forward to. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. See you next week as we get closer and closer to the climax of Easter and Good Friday. And we keep going with some of these famous last words. God bless you. Have a great week.